Good morning and welcome to the Completely Unnecessary Skeptical Podcast. I'm Nathan and joining me today is Craig. Hello. And Chrissy. Hi. And Susie. Hello. And joining us live from Perth, Australia is Daniel Keogh. Hello. Professor Funk. Yep, that's the one. Professor Funk. And we're going to be interviewing Professor Funk later in the podcast. So let's get straight into Notice Board. Are we doing the Skeptics Conference again? This is your monthly reminder about the Skeptics Conference coming up in August. In the shaky city. In Christchurch. There are any buildings left? Yeah. The uh, I don't know if we've checked recently, but last time I heard the university was still standing. So um, conference is still on and it's only $90. And I think if you pay, want the dinner as well, that's 30 bucks. Who's who's going? What, uh, tell me about the speakers. I'm I'm intrigued. <laughs> so you put us on the spot now. <laughs> Off the top of my head, I know that Kylie Sturgis is coming over. Oh, I'm, I'm good friends with Kylie. She's um she's from Perth as well. Yeah. Oh, well, you'll be over then as well then for the conference then. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. Is there actually a program? Is there a program yet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's on the website. If someone wants to look it up, that saves me just stumbling around trying to do it all from memory. <laughs> Um, there is a draft program. Draft program. Um, who else is coming from Australia? Martin Bridgestock is coming over. And I think Stuart Landsborough may be there as well. Founder of... Yes, yes, he's um, founder of Wanaka's Puzzling Word and has sponsored a psychic challenge for many years now and had some interesting, if unconvincing, encounters over that time. And we've also got Mark Quigley who was one of the geologists um, who was involved with um, communicating the science around the earthquakes in Christchurch. Oh, you mean he didn't use the, 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 the moon, moon and stuff? No. There's another way of doing it, is that great? Apparently so. And uh, Michael Edmonds, who's going to talk about the International Year of Chemistry. Oh, exciting. Very. And there are probably some more names still to come in yet. I'll be there. I think they have a couple of spaces. We're all going to be there, I think, are we? Oh, I'm going. Craig's going. Susie? Hasn't decided yet. Susie hasn't decided yet. She has yet to be convinced. <laughs> it's at the end of August, 26th to the 28th of August. Uh, and in the news recently, uh, apparently Leicester has been invaded by zombies. Susie? It has. Um, so Leicester, for those who haven't heard of it, is a city in the UK. Um, and uh, it was uh, invaded by zombies yesterday. So if you remember a little while ago, the CDC released that fantastic document about how to prepare for a zombie apocalypse. And um, under the Freedom of Information Act, somebody contacted Leicester City Council and said, are you prepared for a zombie apocalypse? And they admitted they weren't. So um, a whole group of people planned a, uh, a zombie invasion. So about 150 people in horror makeup took part in a mass shamble and groaned and pressed themselves on the glass at the council's offices. I love that bit. <laughs> groaned and pressed uh, themselves. I just thought this was very funny. And the um, Leicester City Council were, yeah, were, were all right about it. They said it was, it was amusing. Um, but they didn't think that other, pe other, other councils in the UK were prepared either. So I don't know whether this means we're now going to see a, a huge number of mass... A um, zombie uprising. Zombie, yeah, zombie uprising. Sweet. Just as long as people don't start taking it seriously and bring out their shotguns. Ah, yes, I suppose. Um, so they say they didn't try to get inside. They just you know, moaned at the windows and then they went off to the pub. Pressed so in true, in true zombie apocalypse style. <laughs> As, as you do, as most you zombies do. Yeah. end up at the pub afterwards. Yeah, so there you go. Zombies invade Leicester. Well, uh, 
we did that in Australia as well. We did a for, for the TV show I worked with. Um, we did a special broadcast about preparing for the zombie apocalypse, and we asked our national scientific research organization um, and the Department of Defense. We we asked them about their preparations for the zombie apocalypse, and there was absolutely none. Oh. So it's 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 yeah. I I reckon. I reckon we're all in for a bit of, you know, a zombie uprising. I think it will be healthy for everyone. Yeah. Keep us on our toes, you know. You can never be too prepared. Especially since, you know, the zombie apocalypse is likely to be due to some kind of nasty virus, as uh, as we keep being told that... It's probably probably spread by cats. <laughs> spread by cats. <laughs> totally... You're uh, not a cat person, Ben. <laughs> no, it's, uh, do you know about... Toxoplasma gondii or whatever that, that is. That is so cool, that bug. Yep. Yeah, and it kind of controls the behaviour of rats. Mice. It makes them. It makes them less fearful. Yeah. Yeah, and so it basically makes them a bit more suicidal, so that they'll get eaten by cats. Um, and and one third of the population is in, infected with this parasite, and it's all thanks to cats. So there you go. Thanks, guys. That is awesome. I think that's a fantastic segue into the story I want to talk about. Go on, Which then. is Big Pharma releasing superbugs. Have you heard about this, Daniel? No, I haven't. Tell me more. So you might be aware that on the other side of the world, um, there's been a, a rather nasty E. coli outbreak going on in Germany. Yes. Yeah, in Germany. Bean sprouts? Or what was it? Who was the culprit? Bean sprouts, yeah. Bean sprouts, So yes. there's about 37 people um, dead now and hundreds of people have had sort of kidney failure and stuff. It's been pretty nasty. It's been one of the nastiest, possibly the nastiest E. coli outbreak. Um, and the bug responsible is really interesting. So the, the Chinese have sequenced its genome um, really rapidly, which has been fantastic uh, to find out sort of a little bit more about it. And it turns out that it's are resistant to like eight classes of antibiotic and it's got this toxin and stuff like this. But there's um, a very funny man, the um, health ranger, who believes that this has been released by Big Pharma. So it wasn't a, it wasn't an environmental thing at all. Um, it's uh, because there's no way that a bacteria could be resistant to that many antibiotics <laughs> without being engineered by somebody. Now, now, Susie, when you say funny, you mean ha-ha funny or funny in the head? A little bit of both, I think. <laughs> I think so. Is this the guy that was in the... Um, this is Mike Adams. The, Mike Adams. There was a thing, I think it was last year, where people were voting via Twitter for the best scientist or the best podcast or what have you. And he was in a race against Kylie Sturges. No way. Oh, no was way. He's not even... He's he's a woo guy. He's not. He wouldn't be in the same category. No, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure he was the guy. And uh, it turned out that he'd created, or someone on his side had created a whole lot of fake accounts in order to vote. Ah, And he effectively got um, disqualified. Right. Anyway, so so he has said that this E. coli that has has killed lots of people in Germany has been released deliberately into the food chain by Big Pharma. So they also. Scientists, stroke big pharma, have created this bug and then they've released it into the food chain. Now, shall I explain his reasoning behind this? Because it's quite interesting. And I'm I'm expecting some points for this. It sounds pretty plausible so So, far. 
So if you remember, a few weeks ago, we talked about the um, EU directive that was a a pro-consumer law to get uh, natural products manufactured properly and so that they say what they you know what they have in it and that they do have that in it and stuff right. so it was nothing about efficacy it was purely about the fact that they'd be manufactured to good manufacturing pro, um, processes and um obviously all the vitamin peddlers have gone up in arms about this saying it's going to put them all out of business blah 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 so he says as a direct result of this this um direct directive people aren't going to be able to access their natural health products so they're going to need to eat more vegetables so now big pharma don't want people eating more vegetables because that means they won't be able to take their medicines so they have released this really nasty e coli into the vegetables to stop people needing you know wanting to eat vegetables so it's pretty um well how can you argue with logic like like that amazing i mean mean, as microbiologist i'm kind of saddened that he he doesn't believe these you know, these bugs could possibly be able to, you know, become resistant on their own. I mean, this is what they do. They're fabulous. Um, so, yeah. So he started with the wrong premise mm. because, you know, the, the zombie apocalypse is coming and it is going to be super bugs. Absolutely. You really need a, a microbiologist in the room to be talking <laughs> about a super bug and have someone say, oh, my God, that is so amazing. I love this thing. <laughs> well, an interesting segue we could have here is that, um, the National Party and the Green Party have got together to um, say we're going to regulate uh, natural health products in New Zealand. Oh, well, that's they? good. I hadn't heard about that. Mm. But I'm suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> yes. With the Green Party being involved, especially Sue Kedgley. Who's on record as being a fan. Yeah, well, she seems to be a strong woo proponent. Okay. Anyway, there you go. That's my... That's enough microbiology. I'm done now. I'm all right. <laughs> you happy? Yep. Susie, if the zombies do come from that, will they all be vegetarian? <laughs> <laughs> Instead of groaning for brains, they'll be groaning for grains. Oh, I see what Very you did nice. there. Well done. Bye. Well done. <sighs> yeah, all right. Right. <laughs> Whose idea was this guy again? <laughs> Ignore them. Um, okay. So, leading us on to... Strokes. <laughs> As it does. <laughs> okay, someone, is this yours, Susie? No, nah, Craig can do this one. Craig, tell us about Harold Camping. Camping. Harold Camping is that famous guy who predicted the end of the world on May 21st. It wasn't the end of the world. Well, it was the, the rapture. rapture. Get it the beginning right. of the end of the world. Okay, it was, and, and it didn't happen as we all know because we're all still here and all the Christians are still here as well. Most or of maybe the they weren't or at least Christian the ones enough. Who weren't true Christians. Apparently their souls are gone though. Yes. Oh, how does that work? <gasps> Zombie apocalypse! <laughs> Sorry. It turns out that he's gone and had a stroke. Now, we wouldn't want to laugh at his misfortune. <laughs> but we will anyway. Um, but he, he's the guy who um, who got people to sell up their homes and give away all their money to him to to put billboards up all around the place to say it was all going to happen. And, um, and of course... Um, Christians, being the crazies that they are, are now saying that uh, is this judgment from God on Harold Camping for making false predictions? Ooh. Now, I don't know about that because technically it's the Christians that are supposed to punish him. If someone makes a prediction and doesn't come true, you're supposed to stone him to death. Wow. Now, I don't know that God would intervene in something like that. It's very good to have a recovering, um, a recovering Christian crazy in the room. You can, you know, (laughs) 
keep us straight on all these stories. Okay, hey, Nathan. Can we say recovered? <laughs> recovered, please? sorry. It's, surely it's a very long path. No, it took no. me about a year. Okay. Yes, but, but surely in the, in the, in the Bible, um, uh, God has had retribution on people. and So why can't it happen these days? Yeah, yeah. I, I, you could go either way. I just wanted to bring up the fact that he should have already been stoned to death by now. Right. Technically. Just in case any of the, any of them are listening, if you want something to do next weekend, you know, <laughs> just putting that out there. But he has been receiving apparently some sympathy tweets. Oh really? Some what? So, sympathy tweets. Oh. Carol camping is That's a the only tweets I get. The sympathy, sympathy kind. Oh, you're talking about something else. Sorry. Nathan. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Moving on. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on. What's the next one? I can't see. The okay. Data. So. Um, Oh, God, do we have to? Kendring. So Woo Zealand, people. This is Woo Zealand, our Woo Zealand segment. And it's really long today. <coughs> there's a lot there's of a stuff. Lot of going there's on. a lot of Woo in New Zealand at the moment. Um, and the leader of the Woo. One that maybe I'm not, not, a, I'm not to even going to say his goddamn name. Someone else introduced this segment. This Ken is this item. Moon Man Kendring. <laughs> have you heard of this guy uh, over there, Daniel? No. He predicts the weather. Long range. Yeah, at a year in advance, using the moon. So oh, wow. And he said, uh, "Hey, even worse, he so he sells almanacs that talk about his uh, his predictions. And do you know where they are in borders? They're in the science section." Oh no. So anyway, this man who I refuse to name has been predicting more earthquakes, even though he said he wasn't going to. That's it. He said well, there was going to be more around on. So apparently last Saturday, in his regular slot in fishing at Radio Live's fishing show, he said, I'm expecting a bit of earthquake risk Where all the Monday. best science is promoted. Yeah. <laughs> and lo and behold, what happened on Monday, but there was two fairly big um, earthquakes. But they, they weren't significantly bigger than the aftershocks that have been happening recently anyway. And how many aftershocks have there? I well, mean, there's they been tons of aftershocks, yeah. and it turns out that 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 Monday one was a bit stronger than all the others. But it nobody died except perhaps one guy who fell over, and he was on his way out anyway. <laughs> oh, it doesn't matter then. <laughs> it doesn't count. <laughs> no, look, this has all been debunked over and over and over again. Lots of earthquakes. You predict a day, you're bound to hit something somewhere. And he gave himself his usual one That's day. Fine either side, and he said something along the lines of a bit of earthquake risk around or on Monday from Christchurch to Wellington, plus or minus a day or two. It's his usual bullshit. In a region that's having earthquakes. And and the Herald is cherry picking. Of course. That he's got it right again. Not not publicising all the time he's got it wrong. Yeah. He mentioned um, his regular spot on Radio Live which I think is quite interesting because if you're listening to Radio Live, you should probably be listening to Graham Hill. Yeah, who's not on Cameron. Sundays. And, uh, and not Saturdays. this fishing show. Is he on Saturdays yeah. as well? So he's on Saturdays and Sundays on Radio Live, Graham Hill, and uh, he's awesome. Don't listen to the fishing show. Don't listen to the fishing show. That's what that article is basically. The moral of the story, don't listen to the fishing show. And moving on to something more interesting. Well, just on the issue of, um, you know, predicting earthquakes... There's, I remember coming across it um, a while ago, but there's an interactive map online of the past week in earthquakes. And it's actually 
fairly like it's surprisingly frequent how much of the earth is moving like you're getting you know in the order of kind of 20 earthquakes a day around the world and it's you know from minor tremors upwards and you know they're pretty much occurring in the same sort of places so he's making the job pretty easy for himself is is one thing to add as well absolutely um so moving on to the next item and this is something that bruce wants us to talk about mercredan mercredan uh chrissy you've been looking into this one this guy has a website of some sort he has a couple oh he's got lots of things Tell us who he is. Okay, he's a guy that lives in Waiheke Island. He go, it's Mercredan, M-E-R-C-R-E-D-A-N. It's a location in consciousness, which in the past has been called the Veil. And apparently this guy has been channeled. It's the first time that Mercredan has spoken publicly, and I'd like to say this out. When the time is right, the teacher appears. Mercredan has said that when the teacher is ready, the students will find him. This is the beginning of the imminent transformation of civilization. So, Mercredan was a real person, or wasn't? Isn't is just a is a spirit? spirit. I say in inverted commas. So the guy in the blue shirt is channeling this guy. Mercredan, yeah, and he wears a lovely scarf. So this is Francis, or somebody else. Looks like because I've same got somebody guy. called Francis yep. Evans, who's a channel, the channeler of Mercredan. astrological counselor, hypnotherapist, and Avatar registered trademark master. Does he mean the film? I don't think he no, means no. No, no, Avatar. Film. You know, have you not heard of Avatar? Well, I've heard of the the blockbuster. Am Avatar I, am is I... a word. It means like a representation, like what you do when but you're how, a second so how can you, how how is can you register it then? I would have thought that trademark would have been the film, actually. Mm. Oh gosh, there's more. There's more one one person channeling this. But the Avatar course, it's licensed through Star's Edge International. After more than 20 years, this is still the most outstanding personal evolution program yet devised, they say about themselves. But Mercredan is a non-physical being that offers experience and guidance from another dimension. So he's just made this guy up. Yeah. And it's a ridiculous accent. And what I might do actually is I'll pull some audio off that oh, clip man, and play, yeah. you, play you a yeah. section of what he says. <laughs> Good idea, Nathan. I'm putting this together is because of the situation on the planet, the, the shift that we appear to be on the verge of. Changes have to happen, and millions of people all around the world already know this. So I wanted to tune into Mercredan to that higher aspect, to that wider, deeper view and get some answers to some questions. Francis so. Evans is not only a good friend, but a remarkable trance channel or medium. His connection with Mercredan, a source of collective knowledge from the spirit world, has been inspiring me for years. Once again, it is my privilege and pleasure to come and spend these few moments of your time. So... Many times I have said that the time is upon humanity and now you begin to see what I am going to call the markers of time. That is, many little 
consistencies across many areas of life where you are called upon to put aside the old way of thinking and begin to recognize the coming together of a stream of individuals working as a collective for the benefit of all. And that's probably enough. And then we'll all have a big laugh. <laughs> that's us pretending to laugh because we didn't actually just listen to that clip. We just stuck it in afterwards. <laughs> Now we're really laughing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like this. There's the profit.co.nz, Equilibrium Human Development Limited. This yeah. page is still being prepared. Yeah. Is that the that's home page? Good, isn't it? Yeah. That's oh, the good. one that I was looking good. at before. I know, wait, no, that's, that's messages from Mercredan. This page is, an, is, is a work in progress, apparently. Yeah. So it hasn't one. said anything worthwhile yet. But Francis even is the... Yeah. Okay, we'll put some links up to that. Everyone go and have a look, have a bit of a laugh. I wonder if the public's in the mood for, for this guy. I mean, who, who's he trying to target? With? Well, he, but he does everything. He does hypnotherapy. You say he lives in Waiheke. Yeah, he does everything. He can heal quite a bit. everything. Yeah. Waiheke Island is one of the centres of woo in New Zealand. Mm. At any rate, he's um, he's ripping people off, I think, is the... Um, Definitely. Is the, is the crux of the matter. Is that enough about that? Yep, that's enough about that. What's the next thing? So... Talking about religion in schools and the efforts that are underway currently to possibly remove the religion in schools. Can I just say something? I remember when I was at school, I was brought up a Catholic. And um, I remember that we, you know, the assembly would be assembled and the Catholics... Did you go to a Catholic school? No, no, it was just a normal school, but the Catholics and some others were taken away taken out we had our own and, shot out. and all the rest you know all the rest day. and I always felt kind Maybe of the rapture yeah I always felt kind of let that you know left I don't know I don't know what that so, was about oh you you were you were leaving with the rest of them or because you were I staying was bored, behind no I had the Catholics were taken right. out right so you had your own special thing which is interesting because that's actually the opposite of, of one of the ar arguments they're making um, for the removal of religion in schools is that the system is currently an opt out system which means you're you're in it by default unless your parents write you a note. Mm. So very few kids actually get notes from their parents, and they get taken out of the class and dumped in the library for half an hour or whatever. And so they can read some real books. I know. I reckon. And I'm That's thinking cool. if if I was at school and I got to get out of class for half an hour and go to the library, yeah, what I'm saying is, if I if it had happened to me when I was at school, I'd be wrapped yeah. to spend half an hour in the library. Of but the, what they're arguing is that. Um, the kids that are taken out are feeling a bit left out and excluded because all the other kids get sweets and toys and treats and stuff. Either way, it's a, it's a so bad thing. I've got something here that has been produced um, presumably by all the rationalists and sceptics and everything that says 10 easy things you can do to keep religion out of New Zealand schools, which we'll put a link to. Um, yeah. But it says here that, that there's 20 hours of school time. What do they mean? 20 hours over a year? 20 hours a week? 20 okay. hours over a year. There is a loophole that's known as the Nelson loophole. I don't know when it first started, but someone sat down and looked at the curriculum and they found a half an hour in every week that wasn't officially accounted for. 
and they went to the schools and said, oh, look, you've got this half an hour a week. Can We can come in and do our religious instruction courses during that half an hour. And that's actually recently, I think, fairly recently, been passed into law. And it is actually now officially religious instruction time or something to that effect. Now, I don't know the whole story. Um, we should probably mention at this point Peter Harrison, who is organ well, I don't know who's organizing it per se, but he has set up a Facebook page for it. And the Facebook page is Keep Religion Out of Schools, brackets New Zealand, or something like that. We'll put a link. So everyone wants to join that and uh, throw your two cents in. Yeah, we'll see how we get on. I'm not quite sure what's being planned. Uh, I think one of the ideas is to change it from being an opt-out system to an opt-in system. So the people that want to do it get taken away and go into their little classroom. Which um, and, and of course this is being used to promote Christianity as the religion, not indeed. any other religion. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah, but there'd probably be five or different sections nowadays. <laughs> You'd have to have like t- ten different RIs. Um, what's the situation over in Australia? Do you guys have something similar? Um, y- yes, but I mean, I, I, I was in the same situation in that I was brought up in a Catholic school as well. And if I knew I had an option to sign out, I reckon that's the way to do it: is to tell the kids that you can get free time, essentially. Um, rather than, you know, kneeling on uh, hard uh, wooden pews. But um, in terms of what we're doing, I'm not 100% sure, but um, we're, we're currently, our current issue is the idea of um, spending money uh, from the federal budget on chaplains in schools. Oh, okay. Instead of, you know teachers and psychologists and those kind of things that can actually do something. Well, I guess we have, I mean, isn't there one at this, the, I definitely saw mention of a chaplain in schools here. No idea. Is it, I mean, rather than replacing a teacher though, is this the chaplain role more of a counsellor role? Yeah, the counsellor role. Yeah, yeah well, what are we doing? Saying don't have sex and, you know, if you masturbate, you're going to go blind? Yeah, stuff like that. yeah exactly. Much rather have a counsellor. Yeah, but they have them as well. Why are we getting chaplains as well. Unnecessary. And on the topic of religion and government, um, there was a bit of an uproar in the last couple of weeks in a council meeting in, someone tell me where it is, Wanganui? Wanganui? It's not Wanganui, it's got not WH. Uh, well, it, it is according yeah. to okay, some no, people. You, can't. you, you, can, can, you can have the H or Fonganui. you can not have the oh, H. There's a huge debate, don't worry about it, we'll do that another day. <laughs> Where a councillor walked out. Not once, but twice. Twice, indeed. And I think he hasn't even missed a couple of meetings since then or something. Um, because they, they read a prayer out. Um, yes. You know, they, I had do a, know they had a prayer have... designed for, well, written specifically for their meeting, for council meetings. And um, so they start every council meeting with this prayer. And one of the councillors objected to this, saying that they shouldn't be having prayers in council meetings. On behalf of a citizen someone actually wrote in and complained and, and made an inquiry about it and someone moved i think uh put forward a motion that the prayer be removed or be said before the meeting as opposed as part of the meeting um and everyone else of course complained about it because obviously they were all religious nut jobs, <laughs> religious nut jobs. 
So what they did was they read the prayer before the meeting. He came in, and then they decided that yeah, they were going to read it during the meeting yeah. anyway, so they read it again. So well, he stormed well out. some of the councillors objected to it being read before the meeting. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Get on with doing your bloody job. Yes. Yes, I don't know what they need a prayer for at a meeting. That's exactly what I said. There was some discussion on the mailing lists about how um, they do something similar in the Auckland meetings, only what they do is uh, more of an affirmation. We're going to be fair and we're going to do a good job and blah, blah, blah. And I, I sort of I replied back to them saying, why do they need to say anything at all? <laughs> this other is their than, job, surely. Other than, um, was everyone here right, let's get started. <laughs> I mean, let's do our mm. best. I mean, the whole idea of the affirmation seems to me just a really um, politically correct pussyfooting around the issue so that you can still have a kind of a prayer, even though it's probably not constitutional, inverted commas. Um, yeah. You know, apparently it's now before the um, Human Rights Commission, so... Someone may or may not have been um, Mr. Solomon, Councillor Solomon, um, has submitted it to the Human Rights Commission for consideration. So uh, we'll keep up to date with that, and we will let you know. Um, two or three weeks after it actually happens, when you actually get our podcast. <laughs> but I, 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 it doesn't doesn't seem that the that the law is clear in New Zealand as to what whether whether there should be. It seems to be a lot clearer in the US in terms of the constitution, yeah. sort of banning uh, religion affecting. Which is hilarious, isn't it? Given how important religion is. Yeah. You know, to be yeah, to be exactly. senator, to be president. Yeah. It's yeah. quite funny, really. Yeah. Whereas here in New Zealand, it seems to be much more murky. Moving on. Yes. So the last New Zealand item is the scary monster that's blocking the Auckland Rail Loop. The $2.6 billion city loop. The, that's a pretty scary it? monster. <laughs> they call it the Horatiu, the Tanifa. The Tanifa. Yeah, but he's got, they've all got names. Mm. It's a particular Tanifa. And he lives in Auckland. He lives underneath right Auckland. There, yeah. right where they're going to put the city loop. And they're saying that the, some this guy Wilcox, what's his first name? Glenn. Glenn Mr. Wilcox says, the, um, there are always ways to placate Tanifa. I wonder what that is. Oh, money. Yeah. The Maori world has its own yin and yang. The Tani and Tanifa had their own yin and yang. As guardians, they protected people, but they also could get up and bite you if they do not like what you were doing. Where's the evidence? Well, exactly. What I've heard on this is the argument that what this chap is doing by invoking his Tanifa is uh, highlighting the fact that he doesn't think his iwi has been consulted. consulted. Uh, properly on this issue, um, which might be a fair comment or might not, I don't know. But um, the way that the article is worded certainly seems as though he is promoting this as an actual tanifa that needs to be thrown some fish heads before they can build their rail loop. I think we should put it in the Auckland Zoo. <laughs> well, now <laughs> that, we should put it in the zoo. That would be a goddamn attraction, that would. <laughs> yes. But see, our mayor said that they're satisfied that an appropriate level of consultation had taken place with Iwi since the inception of the project and that consultation would continue as the project progressed. Yeah, well. but and like then the Tanifar will be happy. Yeah, politically Tanifar are not to be treated lightly. 
He did say politically, though. Politically, politically, not politically. Yeah. So let's just invoke a mythical creature whenever we don't like something that's happening, and that'll get us our way. No, no one would do that, would they? But it runs from Myers Park to the sea, under the town hall, and Queen Street. That's where he lives. And yet the Tanifar has never, ever complained about any of the other buildings that have been put up, or underground work that's been done. Or the trams that used to run down Queen Street. Yeah, it was okay then. Well, there's underground parking. Well, maybe he was complaining, but people weren't listening. Uh, maybe <laughs> because we didn't consult them enough. There you go. Um, there was a very um, reasoned response on the Skeptics mailing list. Do you have the Skeptics mailing list? Anyone? No. no? Okay. Which was sort of talking about the, the point of view. What did he say? What he was getting at was that it is there is a vague possibility that legends of things like Tanifars could come about because a particular bend in the river was particularly dangerous or a region was prone to landslips or earthquakes or something like that and from that point of view he said there may be some merit in at least considering but presumably a, a two point something billion dollar project is not going to be done without structural engineers you know all these kind of people yeah. so if there was a slip a slide a whatever that's yeah. potentially the root of the Tanifar they would know about they it they would know about it you're quite right and of course it's it's how many hundred years later so, yeah. Just for the culturally ignorant, um, what does a tiny bard look like? <laughs> Ooh, kind of green wait. with a big head and arms that curl around. Or is that a tiki, am I thinking? Oh, that's a tiki. Oh, I know the ones. Yeah, no, a tiny far is, I don't think um, I've ever seen one. It's a mythical creature. Yeah, it's, yes. it's invisible. And you can't see it or touch it or smell it, and it lives in the Maori's garage. Well, actually, actually, there was a New Zealand stamp with a tanifar on it. Ooh. Okay. A two-shilling stamp. It kind of looks like a bottle opener. No, it looks a bit like a, um, some kind of lizard. Yeah, A bit okay. like a gecko, but with a funny head. But is that all of them? Do they all look like that, or do they, all the tribes and iwis have their own? I imagine they all have their own. So that's what a tanifar looks like. Looks like one of those. We'll find a picture and we'll put it on the um, on the podcast. It looks page. sort of dragonish, yes. dragonish lizardish sort of thing. So we do have a picture of it. Well, not a not a real picture, not a photo. <laughs> <laughs> Illustration. We're we're still working on the photo. Yeah, yeah. We're going to send some people down. Well, the, the technology hasn't been developed yet to allow us to photograph mythical creatures. <laughs> <laughs> We'll get there one yes, day. Yes, it has. It's called Photoshop. <laughs> <laughs> we recently had a... a um, did you guys get this too? Like in the last week or so, it made the news that there was a um, footage of Big Bigfoot in America. Did you guys get that? No, not recently. It, it, yeah, and it's just, you know, the stereotypical YouTube clip with this blurry thing in the corner, and it made a minute of Australian TV just <laughs> <laughs> this isn't just a recycling of the Patterson Bigfoot video, is it? Yeah. Well, no, 
this one was in the corner and it was a little bit blurry so i don't know i will have to look that up and have a look yeah so that's woo zealand that's what's going on in new zealand or at least the stuff that we can be bothered talking about <laughs> and now it's time for everybody's favorite segment Susie rants about the ponsonby news my favorite segment okay i'm only going to do one story um my favorite person uh the woo vitamin peddler um, John Appleton. So his column this month is about um, hormone replacement therapy and um, he's written it in response to a an article in the New Zealand Listener um, that was a, an attempt to um, understand the issues surrounding hormone replacement therapy. So for the boys in the room this is when women reach the menopause and they start having all these hot flushes and da da da. It's because there's the you know there's their hormone levels are changing and so hormone replacement therapy, um, traditional hormone replacement therapy, is a very effective way of uh, replacing the the hormones they're losing to sort of try and and um, get rid of some of these side effects. There are risks there are things that these um so there are side effects to these things that are worse for some people than others um and there also have been some links to um things like cancers and strokes and stuff so it's not it's not clear cut but it never is with any medicine but they suggest there's a time limit don't they they suggest you shouldn't be on it yeah you shouldn't be on it for everyone it's sort of it's more to help the transition i think of um of those difficult years when it's all starting Anyway, so the article in the listener, the original article, was an assessment of the risks and the benefits of hormone replacement therapy um, and talked about trials and everything. And what it said, so what it concluded with was that um, the current status seems to be that the risks are real but often exaggerated. And the reader was told to avoid the internet and talk to their daughter. Their daughter? (laughs) Their doctor. Who might be a doctor. My daughter would know nothing about this. (laughs) Although she probably knows more than John Appleton. Let's see what happens. That's very true. Um, Anyway, so to talk to their doctor. So now John Appleton, being a vitamin peddler, is sort of incensed about the thought that that people shouldn't go to the internet, that they should go and see their doctor instead. So he gives a little bit of a discussion about, about... hormone replacement therapy talks about where they came from it's all and it's a little bit you know trying to make them sound scary and things um and the reason he's doing this is because he is let me guess he's selling something he isn't actually so i did i did check his website and i'm slightly surprised i couldn't find anything that was to do with that but he is a supporter of an alternative to hormone replacement therapy um which is called um Bioidentical hormones. I've heard that oh, term before. Yeah. It's something to do with um, soy or something. Done, Nathan. What a new age male you are, Nathan. <laughs> Whoa. So there's two parts to the using these bioidentical hormones. So the first thing is what they are. Um, so it was a phrase that was coined many years ago to describe unpatentable plant-derived molecules that they believe to be the identical to human hormones. So this is the first point. Um, So a little word about this. So many of the compounds used in traditional, conventional hormone replacement therapy are derived from the same things. So they could be thought of as bioidentical too. They don't tell you this. Um, But there's no evidence. There's no evidence that these things are identical. There's no... There are all ways you could do it. You could look at their structure, um, but because... 
it was just a it was just a phrase, and there's no evidence that they're so they that they're assume. the same. Yeah, they're just assuming. So one, they're just assuming, and two, they're often used in the conventional treatment anyway. Um, it's more expensive than hormone replacement therapy, of course, of course because it's done yeah, by wankers. Um, <laughs> there's a there's a, another part that they add into it first, which is that they take um, blood or saliva and test hormone levels so that they can then tailor the therapy to you to make sure you're getting the right tailor test yeah and this is another interesting thing because there's no evidence that um the levels of hormones in your blood or in your saliva are, are anything related to what the hormone levels in your tissues are doing which are actually where the hormones are being made so there's so there's no evidence that that's a useful thing and also the hormone levels pulse so there are high yeah. one day and low the next and stuff and so if you just go and have a one-off test that's not any use anyway so it seems that women will go they'll spend a lot of money the usual people oprah winfrey suzanne summers have all written books or written articles or had people on saying you know how amazing this is um and there's no there's absolutely no evidence that it's any better than conventional therapy and in fact it's expected to have exactly the same side effects because essentially many of the molecules are the same they're just done in a different way and given you know usually given but more supposedly with lower risk well that's what that's what they're being banded about. yeah they're being banded about that they're lower risk and they're essentially not oh, and there's no evidence they, of that yeah. um what's kind of interesting is that um for many of these products, of course, there's no requirement for quality control or anything like that. And so there's a couple of studies that have been done that have shown that um, that many of them were either either failed quality control, they actually had stuff in they shouldn't have had, and then there was another study that looked at what they had in them and whether it was the same as what it said in the label. Um, so, for instance, if it was supposed to have a certain amount of a compound, they looked at a whole range of the of these things, and some of them had like 70% of that, and some of them had 270% of what it was supposed to have in it. So, you really have no idea when you're taking these what you're taking and whether you're getting the right amounts. So um, so it's interesting he's chosen this, but of course he's all pro for it. Women should be looking on the internet and finding this alternative that's much safer, which actually there's no evidence for. So John Appleton, thanks very much again. He, yeah. doesn't, he does it every month. He found something new. For you to get... Thanks, for me Susie. to get up and arms about. Yeah. Um, I'm, I thought I was quite calm this month. You were. <laughs> you were. Well done. You know? Susie, what will you do when he quits? I, I don't know. Don't, don't, don't stop. Oh, my gosh. She's freaking out. They'll yeah. find somebody. Someone else will take his place. Uh, bear in mind that she's had to. She's being very, very selective in picking one thing out of the Ponsonby news. <laughs> yeah. There, there is not a dearth of material by any sense I've of the heard about this. Got an international reputation. Absolutely. Let's say that. Awesome. <laughs> okay, that's probably enough about that. Are you going to read that, or am I going to read that? You can read that. Okay. And now we've got an interview with Daniel Keogh, also known as. Professor Funk. Daniel is a one-of-a-kind science presenter. His work has appeared on ABC TV's Hungry Beast and Catalyst, Radio National's Science Show, and online as part of National Science Week. He specialises in taking science research out of the library and into the real world through self-experimentation, public participation, and creative storytelling. In 2010, he held a national tour of his science comedy show, The Stupid Species, why Everyone, Except You, Is an Idiot, which looked at the ways in which people are motivated to think, believe, and do irrational things. Daniel has five years of performance experience for stage, television, and radio, and holds three degrees in science and science communication. His production work includes elements of animation, multimedia, and filmmaking. 
He is kind of funny looking and has silly hair. Uh, and just before we get all the nasty emails, I'm just reading off his press release that he yeah. sent us. <laughs> so don't criticise me. He doesn't mind. It's all lies. <laughs> no, I've seen you. You do have funny hair. <laughs> uh, many listeners may recognise Daniel's voice from the fantastic placebo video that went viral. Um, so let's start with that. What gave you the idea for that video? I made the placebo video because I think the topic is fascinating. Um, and I hope other people do too. Because it, it's very strange that the brain um, can, can heal ailments despite not really there anything, any medical side of things. And I think the one that I am particularly fascinated about is, and I didn't really know about this before I started looking into it, is that you can make placebo alcohol. You can actually make <laughs> drinks that um, contain no alcohol and people can get drunk on them. And I did this as part of the show that I toured around Australia. Um, I basically got uni students drunk on tonic water, which if you're holding a you know, birthday party is a really way, great way to save money. Um, so, yeah, I, that, that was kind of originally where that came from. Would that be a placebo, technically, or more of a nocebo? Oh, good point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but, I mean, it just it, it, it stimulates the same effects that people are used to. It's, it, basically, it's the expectation of... Um, uh, being drunk so they lose coordination and they um, you know they uh, they're less inhibited and they're socially more relaxed and and it comes from a bunch of studies that have um, were being done in America and in, in fact there's a university that specializes in it to the point where they have a lab which has a bar in it so, like, the actual lab is, like, the set of cheers. Oh, um, fantastic. In and they get them drinking these um, placebo-alcoholic drinks. And, and, you know, in one study, they actually had to stop the experiment because people had come to, you know, fisticuffs because they were so uh, drunk, let's say, off these uh, placebo drinks. Do you know how quickly people sober up if you tell them there's been no alcohol in it? Yeah, yeah, instantly. It's quite a, it's quite a cool thing. So, <laughs> for the, um, for the tour, I like I filmed their response, their reaction to, um, being told. So, like, you ask them how drunk do you feel, and most of them say, oh, you know, a bit tipsy. So, on a scale of one to ten, we're getting most people saying sort of between four and six after having you know, three of these gin and tonics, sorry, vodka and tonics. And immediately afterwards, they sort of sobered up. And well, the first response was to feel like a bunch of idiots. And then they sobered up. So there's a lesson in that. So so, so obviously, it has to be a drink where uh, you mentioned the vodka and tonic versus the gin and tonic, because presumably the gin you could taste, but the vodka you couldn't. Exactly. Yeah. The idea is that you basically drown out the taste with the tonic water. Right. So, yeah, the formula is about three to one. But so if you're making the alcoholic one, you've got one part um, vodka. And if you're making the placebo one, you just put tap water in. Ah, okay. I'll have to try that. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, it's good. So probably the most interesting thing I've seen of yours so far is the TV show that you're involved with. Tell us about that. Yeah. Yeah. 
it was a show that was broadcast over here in Australia called Hungry Beast, and I guess it had a really interesting concept in that it was um, sort of a talent search thing across Australia to find young people to present, you know, stories about things that matter to them. And, um, you know, as pretentious as that sounds, it came across to three series um, and, uh, yeah, it was sort of like, a youth current affairs thing without, you know, talking about skate parks. And so it wasn't jobs. all science-based. It was it was all sorts of things. Yeah, it was. It was a mix. I mean, it was, yeah, there was very little woo in there, so I'm glad about that. Um, but it was a mix of, like, comedy, current affairs, and a bit of a sort of, you know, what the fuck element to it. So just looking at weird stuff. Um, yeah, so it was, it was a bit of a an attempt to kind of be youthy and in your face about media. And who was it funded by? Was it like public broadcasting or? Yeah, so it was ABC's our um, public broadcaster and it was a co-production between them and a production company called Zapruder's Other Films, which um, uh, it's, it's, it's the production company of a guy called Andrew Denton. Uh, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of him. Um, but the, I mean, the reason why it got funding was because of its this idea that it was trying to source talent from around the country and get a youth angle as well. Yeah. So, approximately, how much airtime did you personally get for your science stories? Uh, it's a good question. There were nineteen of us, so as you can imagine, it kind of uh, it didn't come to people fulfilling certain roles, as in, you know, there were there everyone was able to write their own stories and pitch those stories. So there were 19 perspectives pitched every single week, basically, um, when we were making a show. So in terms of airtime, kind of the, the maths come down and not too much, actually. So you, most people got about three or four stories each season. Um, so, yeah, I... I, I perhaps kind of 15 minutes at the end of the day. Yeah. That's still pretty good. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess you're given the national uh, national broadcaster to play with, <laughs> and that's a pretty cool thing to have as, a, you know, as someone who doesn't really know how to make media. <laughs> what sort of feedback have you had, or did they get about you? About me in particular? Well, the one I saw just today was um, how you were calling out um, Scientology. People that attack Scientology. Attacking Scientology, and you mean, and you criticise a number of other religions. Yeah. Do you get a lot of angry emails and... Well, yeah, that was an interesting one. Well, in general, most people hated me because I looked like an idiot. Um, I did all kinds of great things for my self-esteem. Twitter is a great, great thing for that. Um, but uh, in terms of that Scientology piece, it was interesting because it, it was pretty divisive because... On one hand, the people that actually got the point um, and, and didn't appreciate that it was attacking other religions, you know, obviously didn't like that. I had a few people kind of complain about throwing the Quran on the floor and, you know, all this other junk. Um, and then on the other hand, you had the kind of crowd that was of the anonymous crowd, you know, the people that organised these, um, you know, attacks against Scientology. And I, I, I'm completely for them because it's coming from 
a good place, but I don't think they think they see the bigger issue of the argument I was trying to make in that attacking one religion for being kooky kind of is a little bit um, irrational in the sense that, you know, if you're saying that that um, Scientology is causing these harms against other people, then you just need to look at history in regards to Judaism and, uh, you know, from Christianity and Islam. And, you know, you can't compare, you can't begin to compare the, the um, you know, violations of human rights and, and you know, uh, prejudice against certain minorities and groups and those sorts of things. So it, it did get... It didn't make me too many fans, let's say that much. What other stories did you end up getting on the show? Um, I've got a couple on, but I guess one that's worth mentioning that you guys might like um, was the very first episode, which kind of made you know a bit of a mark of what we were trying to set out to do. But um, we basically trolled the media before we'd even been on TV. So... A group of us, two or three of us in the group, um, uh, set about making this uh, false scientific research institution that um, had conducted a survey across Australia to find out which city was the most gullible. So we sent our press release, we had a website, we had this false uh, PDF document of our scientific research, with 10 pages with graphs and all this lingo going on. Um, with paper called uh, detection De- deception detection across Australian populations, <laughs> and it was basically just a chance to look at how gullible the media were about taking this story. And um, you know, we had tons of websites from our major mastheads of um, you know News Limited and Fairfax. Um, we had it hit some of the street papers and on radio, a number of radio stations picked up this story. And even on that night, um, that was released, it was brought up on a youth news panel show and they even had an expert on to, you know, look at the study and none of them saw through that it was absolute bullshit. Like within the study itself, there was a line that, 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 explicitly stated that everything was completely made up. These stats are completely made up. Those are the words within the re- research report. This is it within the two, within the 10 pages? Within the 10 pages. It was buried. But <laughs> if anyone read the thing, it was such bullshit. I wrote it in under 24 <laughs> hours. It was like the fastest scientific paper I've ever written. <laughs> but there were these seeds that we were had left there this obvious um, uh, stuff we had left for people to find out about. Um, but it was really a critique of kind of the media's gullibility to kind of grab stories that they want to hear. The big yeah. thing was that Sydney was told to be the least, uh, sorry, the most gullible, whereas Melbourne was the least gullible. And you know, that just feeds off the Sydney-Melbourne rivalry, which I imagine you guys have. Who ran with the story more, Sydney or Melbourne? That's a good point. Um, uh, Sydney did come out with with more, yeah, across the different media. Um, but 
being picked up across Australia as well. We got picked up in Perth and, and across the other cities as well. Um, and, and I guess the other one is that, you know, journalists don't have time to proofread, that, proofread um, or fact check. And that's one of the other things we're trying to point out. Yeah, interesting. So do you think it's made a difference then? No. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be good to do it again. I, I think it's almost too hard to top. Just the idea of making a study about gullibility to capture gullible people. It's like that classic line of saying, did you know the word gullible was removed from the dictionary? I mean, it just, you almost can't punk someone harder than that. <laughs> it was a good start. So you've set the bar too high. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Got to, yeah, you've got to think pretty hard to get the next science thing in. Your um your placebo video, it's got some very nice graphics with it. Uh, mm. So the the guy who did that is uh, how, how did you get in contact with him? And have you got other videos that have got that sort of level of graphic production? To answer that question, no, not yet. Uh, the person I the person who did it was actually one of the other hungry beasts. And if you see stuff from the show, you'll kind of get. This, there's this series called The Beast File, which we made each week. And you get the kind of feel for what the graphic um, setup of the show was. And it was a lot of this um, graphic animation, typography, such sort of stuff. So that was something that I learned was really valuable from the TV show. And it's kind of getting a bit mimetic around the web. Like people love the kind of infographic um, style setup. Um, so he was just a friend that I knew through Hungry Beast and it was a piece I produced for this show I was making and I just, yeah, we just worked in collaboration to make that thing. Mm, very nice. Did it take a lot of time for him to do that? No, he, he's pretty skilled at it. What's really interesting is, um, you know, when it was around on the web, you get so many comments of people saying, what program do you use? As in like, you know, imagining that there's almost like a PowerPoint, a PowerPoint program for, yep. go, input, input data, make awesome. Yeah. yeah. Which menu option is that in PowerPoint? <laughs> um, I, as, a, as a microbiologist, one of the things I most loved about what you've done is the Gardasil um, piece. Can you tell us a bit about that? Because that also has beautiful graphics and things on it or beautiful animation on it, I guess. Thank you. Um, the quirky animation in that I, I, I'm, I like doing stop animation. So it's a bit like kind of quirky and lame and that sort of stuff. But in terms of the story, um, it, it was basically a story about why guides, the, an argument for why guys get vaccinated against cervical cancer, which sounds logical, but it's about, um, you know, the data seal protects against HPV, which can infect you know, both men and women, in fact, affects kind of, you know, uh, three quarters of the human population in their lifetime. Um, but it came about from basically in Australia, we were giving the vaccine uh, vaccinations for free to girls uh, from school age to 26. And some friends of mine were getting it and they mentioned that the nurse was saying, you know, guys could get it. And for me, that was totally, that was totally something I was completely unaware of. Um, and as soon as I started researching into it, I, I was starting to wonder 
why the the hypocrisy of the idea that um sexual health should be the sole responsibility for women yeah kind of felt like you know a bit a bit too easy for a guy to kind of take no role in it um so yeah part of it was that i i got self-vaccinated against um uh hb um and uh i mean the cost of that is the one thing so you actually have to pay for it out of pocket so how much was that it's a great pickup line with women. You're like, <laughs> I'm not going to cervical cancer. Sleep with. So in the in the in New Zealand, it's the same. We only vaccinate the girls here, and I think actually it's the same in a lot of countries. And I think it's one of these cost benefit analyses that's come out on the side of it's too costly to vaccinate everybody. Um, but I, I mean, I see. I loved. I loved the video. I loved the fact that you show. You know, all the really nasty things that can happen to guys as well. And you're right. Why should it just be? you know, the, the girls who are getting vaccinated. But unfortunately, and, with the cost of it, it's not going to change. Yeah. The, the only one thing that does need to change, though, is the awareness um, in the gay community. So vaccinate, vaccinate all the girls you want. It won't help them in any way. Um, so it is really something that should be promoted to, to um, gay men. So, and I mean, rates of anal cancer in men um, uh, are as high as cervical cancer in women. So within gay men, sorry. So, so the link there, HPV causes um, cervical cancer just as often as it does anal cancer. It just depends where it's getting infected. That's, like, that's yeah. really interesting because as a as a heterosexual female, I'd never really thought about that. And you're right. I mean, the boys should be up in arms. Yeah, about yeah, this. yeah, particularly within that community. Yeah. Um, it's a horrid place to have cancer. Um, yeah, and I mean, you know, and they're quite a, um, uh, you know, they're quite aware of STIs, but it's kind of not one that, you know, you, you hear about. Yeah. And I think hmm. it kind of should be something that we, should be within the community that they're um, promoting. Uh, yeah. There's something else interesting I was going to say, but we can pretend I said something interesting and we'll just leave it. That, that. was really interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. interesting. You might you might be interested to know that um, there's just recently been a study, an Australian study. Um, uh, I'm not sure if it's been published yet in the Lancet, but I've seen the press release. It's looking at uh, the um, cervical abnormalities. Um, so when so women have these smears to have a look at the cells and stuff and um, if they're abnormal, then this is sort of, you know, possibly on the road to cervical cancer. And so they've done a study to look at the difference between um, these abnormality rates in vaccinated and unvaccinated girls um, and come up with a there's less changes. Now, I haven't read the study and it struck me as being a little bit too early to be looking at this because the girls are really young. You know, they mm. didn't start vaccinating that long ago, I guess. Um, but anyway, so it looks like it's um, they would say it's working. We had one recently that was saying that the rates of halved, so from about, um, you know, 100 women per year, I think it was, or, yeah, to, uh, no, one in 100 or so, I can't remember. Um, but, yeah, it basically halved over that time. So it does look like the initial phase of it is going in the right place. So that's a good thing to hold up against the anti-vaxxers. But the other one... That's that's probably not as nice. Was that um, you know basically you can get cancer wherever you stick this thing, 
and uh, what they've found is that throat cancers have increased because of HPV, and you can kind of get what I'm getting at. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. What? So, so essentially, the rates of all these cancers should drop then, as the population have less, have, don't get HPV infection. I guess. Yeah. Mm. And I mean, uh, that, that's the amazing thing about vaccination is just the. I mean, that that whole idea blows my mind. The sense that we are using science to essentially eradicate um, a cancer, and it's so rare that it's you know the equivalent of winning the lottery twice. I mean, I, I think that is an idea that people should be celebrating, and it's kind of. Bizarre. I mean, when you look at the the smallpox. Um, uh, vaccination scheme. I think that is one of the greatest achievements of humankind and medicine. And I don't think we acknowledge that enough. The fact that, like, I, I want to say something here because, like, so last year was the year of biodiversity. That, um, and and I've as I really struggle with this concept that you know we're trying to protect some species, but we're essentially trying to drive some of these ones extinct. I mean, obviously, I'm a microbiologist. I'm fascinated by them. I'm you know I'm involved in developing you know vaccines and drugs. So clearly, I don't want these things to kill people. But I have this internal struggle with myself that you know, but but we're making them extinct. Is that allowed? <laughs> but so why? Because they're you know why why are we protecting the tiger and not protecting the smallpox virus but anyway that's just me chance of a tiger killing you is much lower than the smallpox <laughs> that's true. In, in susie's world there, there's a zoo <laughs> well there zoo. is it's called it's called the you know the who who's got it so i guess the u.s have got a vial of of um smallpox that they um at the moment there's a massive debate going on about smallpox so should we be destroying the last few vials of this um, yeah. Because Russia have a, apparently have a vial, and so do the, the Americans. And I guess Americans the Americans are refusing to destroy their vial until they know the Russians have destroyed their vial. Um, because if we if we get rid of the source, you know, what if somebody uses it as a as a biological weapon? We Mutually might not have assured any... destruction of yeah. the biological yeah. kind. Yeah. yeah, but but again, you know, so so maybe there should be a minus eighty degree freezer that has all our very last vials of all these things, and then. And then, when we no longer have any protection, then will come the zombie apocalypse. Ta-da! So, so Daniel, have you come come up against the AVN? Uh, yeah. So that show, again, like I mean, I like I, I like this part of about our shows that it's divisive. So on one hand, we got doctors writing in saying, you know, they're vaccinated, their boys, and and they loved it and that sort of thing. And then you get people trolling the website. And, or, and also the other thing. And, and this is just a general thing in terms of particularly media. Um, they can be very annoying in terms of time-consuming uh, pro- processing, right? So when, when you do something that um, goes against the brain, then you actually get um, official complaints, which because of bureaucracy have to go through certain pathways and certain people will have to be involved and certain amounts of hours have to be invested in replying to each one. And, and, you know, the less satisfied they are with that response, the deeper it goes and all this stuff. So one complaint can, can lead to, you know, uh, you know, five hours of work across different people. But the thing is, 
Nobody, when, when someone writes in to give you a compliment, no one spends five hours baking you a cake. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, it's really interesting in the sense that you have to take people very, very seriously when they complain in our culture. Um, when people give you a compliment, it's kind of, it's literally pat on the back. Yeah. Whereas... A complaint is a punch in the face and a huge inconvenience. And it's this weird, bizarre thing. I remember when PZ Myers was um, speaking in Australia for the Atheist Convention, someone asked him, what can we do about teachers that um, teach uh, intelligent design? And his response was, do you know teachers that teach evolution? And how often do you write to them to say, this is fantastic, this is a good thing? And that kind of that really changed my mind about things because I think our natural response is to complain and everything is set up for complaints, but you know, these warm fuzzies is all you get from someone giving you a compliment. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. We should be, we, we, we do a lot of complaining and we don't say, you know, well done enough to people. Uh, yeah. I think it is right to assume that people uh, w would teach science that is based on fact. So, you know, we shouldn't really have to um, say congratulations to a science teacher that actually teaches science. But, you know, that, that kind of thinking really opened my mind to that idea. Um, but to cut to the point about anti-vaxxers, yes. And, I mean, there's very little you can do um, besides be incredibly solid in your facts and the fact that they... They're crazy. You've got, and you've got some particularly crazy ones in, in Australia as well. Yeah. I mean, they're very passionate. Um, and, and, and it comes to the touch, you know, the, the very touchy issue of children and their children. Um, but, I mean, the worst thing is when you look at, um, you know, what's happening in Europe and America right now with um, MMR and rates of measles. And, and it, it just really hurts my head that um that you know that these people get so riled up about protecting themselves but doing so by by not vaccinating the kids they're actually condemning other people's children to you know a very gruesome uh you know death basically potential potentially yeah sorry that's presumptuous. Yeah, well, and we're, we're having a, a quite a big problem with measles here as well. So just um, last month or something, there was some unvaccinated child with measles went to the cinema. Um, and so Ooh. they've had to, they've, I mean, a whole load of kids, a lot of unvaccinated kids who should have been vaccinated but haven't, haven't been vaccinated who are off school and stuff like that. You know, there was a couple of schools where it was like, I don't know, a fifth of the kids in the school were not vaccinated. I mean, it's crazy. Mm. And what over thirty in hospital, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So we've we've had yeah we've had our problems with measles definitely. Yes. Anyway. <coughs> yeah. I just like to take this opportunity to say what a great job you're doing. We really appreciate it. And we'll bake you a cake. And uh, <laughs> yeah, Su Susie's going to bake you a cake. Well, funnily enough, I've just baked a chocolate one this morning, so we'll eat. We'll, we'll eat this you. in your in your memory. <laughs> yeah. Dedicated to Cheers you. Cheers to Daniel. And, and again, apologies for the brain mess up. It's really, really hard to speak. Well, just blame it on Skype. One second afterwards. I sound like a fucking idiot. <laughs> no, no, you don't. Fine. No, you don't. We, we can edit that out. 
<laughs> There's a program for that. <laughs> so, um, thank you very much for joining us on the cusp, uh, Daniel Keogh. Thank you very Daniel. much. Not a problem. So, today's word of the day is <laughs> something that I've been doing all day: <laughs> pendiculation. Well, you'd be—you wouldn't have been pendiculation. You would have been, been pendiculating. <laughs> well, I'm very sorry. Pendiculation, the act of stretching and yawning. Together or separately? I well, I assume it's both. You must stretch and yawn in order to be pendiculating. And Craig, you've got a quote for us today? Yes, it's actually um, remarkably um, appropriate. The medicine that I use has two things that distinguish it from some other forms of medicine, in scare quotes. It appears to work anywhere on the planet, and I don't have to believe in it for it to work. <laughs> Said by a guy called David Ramey. Well, you've been listening to the Completely Unnecessary Skeptical Podcast. If you'd like to send us a message, check out the Contact Us form on our website, thecusp.org.nz. Yeah.